0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So we're back in Romans chapter 4, and we're taking actually a, a pretty small slice of the chapter this morning. There's a few verses, 13 through 17. We're doing something that ordinarily, on principle, I wouldn't even do. We're actually going to stop halfway through the paragraph. So we're not even going to finish kind of the big thought of the paragraph that uh, Paul has in mind. But there's a reason for that. There's something I I think it's worthwhile to dwell on at this moment. If you recall, in chapter 4, Paul starts talking about uh, Abraham the significance of Abraham and the covenant history that unfolds in the Old Testament. And the reason why he's talking about Abraham is he's trying to illustrate a point. But he's arguing that justification comes through faith apart from works. That we are saved by faith in Christ alone, and that what we do, what we contribute has nothing to do with it. And to illustrate that point, he's going back and looking at the justification of Abraham, that Abraham was counted as righteous because of his faith rather than earning righteousness through his works. And now you'll see in our text that, that Paul is reiterating some of the, the, those points, kind of making that case really clear. But in the process of doing that, he's going to add some new layers that I want to look at, specifically having to do with the nature of the covenant or the promise that God made to Abraham and through Abraham to us. So we're starting with verse 13 in Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, and here he quotes from Genesis 17, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. There's an interesting reality about God's covenant promises, which is that they are unfolded over the course of time. They develop over time. One of the ways they develop is God adds more promises on. So that we talk about the covenant of grace, but if you go back and look in Scripture, what you'll find is successive covenants, one on top of the other, all of which kind of taken as a whole form that, that one big promise. But the promise over time gets better and better. God enriches the promise more and more over time. He also reveals more about it as well. And and in this way, the covenant promise, one way to understand it might be to think of it more um, the way we think of prophecy. When you think about the way prophecy works, it's kind of interesting. The true significance of a prophecy is usually not apparent immediately. The true meaning of prophecy is, is only revealed in time. Over the course of time you come to see what the prophecy was all about. Sometimes in fact it seems like the prophecy points one way and then in hindsight you realize no actually the prophecy pointed towards something else. Or even more complicated, it seems like the prophecy pointed one way and it did. But in time we come to realize it also and ultimately pointed somewhere else prophecy is complicated that way it's not that the prophecy has changed it's that we have changed our knowledge has changed our understanding has changed we come to have a deeper appreciation a more profound appreciation of what god meant when the prophecy was uttered here's an example in the book of isaiah we always go around advent time to isaiah Uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And we read those prophecies of Emmanuel, those prophecies of a child who would come, and we read them, and, and it's obvious to us, oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. You might as well just plug Jesus right in. But it wasn't immediately obvious to the people who received those promises that they were referring to Christ. In fact... In context, go back and read the book of Isaiah, you'll find there are a number of of children whose comings are prophesied, and oftentimes with little uh, time markers attached. Things like uh, a child will be born, and by the time he reaches kind of the age of understanding, the kingdom of Assyria will have fallen. That's not a reference to Jesus. That's a reference to a child that, that is actually born not too far in the future, after the prophecy is given, because that empire, the Assyrian empire, does in fact fall. Sometimes, if you go back, you'll look at those things and you'll say to yourself something like this. "Well, I go back and I read the prophecy in context and it seems like it doesn't apply to Jesus. It can't. In some cases, these prophecies will say things like, uh, like his sins will be forgiven. And you're like, well, that can't apply to Jesus. And that part doesn't. But others do. One prophecy with an immediate fulfillment, but also a fulfillment in time, like an ultimate fulfillment. And it's difficult to pick those pieces apart except in hindsight. And it's easy when when Paul comes along and says, oh, and this is what it meant. Or Peter says, and this is what the prophet was pointing to. And you're like, of course but you wouldn't necessarily have seen it immediately because prophecies like that. Its significance is revealed over time. Its meaning becomes apparent over time with its fulfillment. What I'm saying is God's covenant promise of salvation is similar in that way. That it is a promise that over the course of centuries and millennia reveals more about itself. It shows more layers. It becomes better and better. It turns out there's more to it than we realized. In terms of Scripture, we call this progressive revelation. We we see that in the New Testament, believers now, reading the scroll of the book of Hebrews, now have access, or reading uh, Peter's letters, now have knowledge that the heroes in the faith did not possess. We know things that were kept from them. And you think, wow, that's amazing to contemplate. It shows the depth of these promises. It shows there is more still to be revealed. And the promise to Abraham is like that as well. You go back in Genesis and you look at what it is that God promised to Abraham. He promised him possession of the land of Canaan. If you go back in Genesis and you start reading around Genesis 12, Genesis 13, and 15 through 17, which is where uh, Paul quotes from earlier, you see that possession of Canaan, like this promised land, is a big part of what Abraham is promised. Not only that, he's promised that his offspring, his descendants, will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And that's a promise also that's reiterated throughout that Genesis account. But here's the thing, that's a promise made in the middle parts of the book of Genesis, early middle parts of the book of Genesis. If you keep reading your Pentateuch, you get through the first five books of the Bible, and then you go on to Joshua, which we preached through last year. People who were children of Abraham, looking at what God had done, would have had good reason to say the promise that was made to our father Abraham has been fulfilled. He said that we would inherit the land, and here we are. He said that we would be as numerous as as the dust of the earth, and look, there are 12 tribes' worth of us. Look how we have proliferated, even in our Egyptian captivity. The promise has been fulfilled, mission accomplished. And there was some truth in that. There was some truth in that. But, of course, there was more to the promise that had been made to Abraham. In addition to possession of the land, in addition to his numerous offspring, Abraham had been guaranteed that in his seed, in his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That he would, in the words of Genesis 17, he would become the father of many nations. Not of one, but of many nations. Now, when you see that there's this guarantee to Abraham and to his offspring, to his seed, it's exactly this promise that Paul in Galatians 3 takes up and, 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 and makes that grammatical argument where he says this word, uh, seed, this is, this is singular, not plural, because it isn't referring to multitudes of offspring, it's referring to one offspring who is Christ. That that Christ is Abraham's seed, and that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And now, here in Romans 4, in describing Abraham and his uh, covenant inheritance, he refers to Abraham this way in that first verse that we looked at, as heir of the world. Abraham is heir of the world. 1 Corinthians 3, 21, picking up a theme that we've seen already in Romans, Paul says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ." is God's. So like a prophecy, the covenant promise reveals itself to mean more than we could have imagined. Abraham has been promised all things in Christ. He's been promised the world in Christ. And if we are Abraham's children by adoption in Christ, then God is promising us the world. God is promising us the world. If somebody makes promises to you, so many promises, you're like, "Ah, you know, this guy, he's promising the world. He's promising me the world. Usually that's a phrase that we use to imply that we do not expect these promises to be fulfilled. People who promise the world can't deliver, by definition. They're promising too much. Paul is telling us, God has promised you the world. That's big. Because this promise is revealed over time, there's a temptation we may have. Uh, We have the New Testament. We, We know things. Things are revealed to us in the New Testament that weren't available to those who lived in that old covenant economy. We can be tempted to say, okay, right, I get it. It was a mystery. There was more to this than they realized. But ah, now we understand now we understand now we see clearly what was hidden has now been fully revealed and yet the question is do we in fact understand what has been promised do we actually understand what god has promised to us or is there more that we have not yet come to realize I don't know about you, but when I think about the promise made to Abraham and I think about the promise that we have inherited in Abraham, it's easy to think of that mainly in terms of my personal salvation, whether or not I have to pay the penalty for my sin. And that's the theme that Paul has been driving through in Romans so far, this idea of justification, which directly relates to the question of salvation. And yet, when I hear the way that Paul refers to Abraham, not just as heir of salvation, not just as heir of the, the imputed righteousness of Christ, but as heir of the world, that starts sounding a little bit too big. Like that, That's not the way I've thought about it. It needs to be narrowed down a little bit. It almost seems like that's, that's too much. It's too vague for one thing, but it's also, it's, it's too much to expect to be an heir to the world. Of course, the, the word that's translated world here is the Greek word cosmos. So what we're saying here is that in Christ, we have a cosmic inheritance, so to speak. The world, it's something bigger than we've appreciated, something more then we've understood Abraham's faith and ours rests on God. It's by grace. It rests on God, Paul says in our text. And then he says two things right at the end about God, two things that I think are really profound. It's the reason why We're violating my principles and stopping in the middle of a paragraph in this case because I want to stop and dwell on what Paul says about God in verse 17, which is that final sentence in our text. He says Abraham's faith is is resting on God, resting on grace. And about God, he says two things. He gives life to the dead. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. God gives life to the dead. And he calls into existence things that do not exist. Talked about cosmos already. Here's a little bit more sort of Greek interesting stuff, especially if you've studied a little philosophy. So the words translated here, existence, the word is anta. So uh, in philosophy, the study of being is ontology. There one of the famous arguments for the existence of God is the ontological argument. So you get this connection here, this idea of existence or being that is being referred to. Uh, so in the text, in Paul's words, he's saying, you know, God makes to be anta, makes to exist, the things that that are not anta, uh, but because it's Greek, he doesn't say not. He says may. Uh, may is is how it's one of the ways to negate a word in Greek. So anta versus may anta. Now this is a great uh, instance where the word in Greek sounds like an English word that we have. And if it weren't Mother's Day, I could counsel young people on an awesome way to use the Greek to your advantage, which is when your mom says you need to clean up your room and do your chores, you could reply, I may. But in your mind, you're thinking I'm replying in Greek, which means I will not, like I I totally won't. But it sounds like you're really open to obedience. And that's the sort of thing on non-Mother's Day I might point out, but this is Mother's Day, so, so let's set that aside. But it's a pretty big statement. It's a pretty big thing that Paul is saying. uh, God gives life to the dead. God brings into existence the things that have no existence, the things that that do not exist. Life to the dead. In Abraham's case, it's interesting to reflect on, on what it means to say that God gave life to the dead. Because this promise is coming to Abraham and his wife Sarah at a time when they are incapable of giving life on their own. They've been promised an heir, but they are incapable of producing this heir. But God brings it about. God brings an heir, Isaac, to life. He brings life from what was, as it were, death. But, of course, we hear those words, and uh, with good reason, we think of Christ. We think of Christ who died for our sins and who God raised from the dead. Christ truly died, did not swoon, didn't just become really weak and pass out. He really and actually suffered death, and then God gave life to the dead. But it's also true in our case. We were dead. We were dead in our trespasses, in our sins. If we have faith, if we believe, if we cling to the cross, it is only because God gives life to the dead. Because we possessed in ourselves no power to cling. It was God who gave life. God gives existence to the things that do not exist. He makes things to be which are not. He made the world, the cosmos, through Christ. All things were made from nothing, from non-existence. He brought about the existence of everything that exists. But not only that, in in a more personal way, We've been talking about this question of of how to be righteous in the eyes of God. And when you come to face the reality that through your own works, you cannot be righteous enough to please God. You cannot do it. You realize that your righteousness is meanta, Your righteousness is a thing that does not exist. But God calls into existence things that do not exist. You have no righteousness of your own. You can't produce this any more than Abraham and Sarah could produce a son. But God brings into existence what does not exist. God makes righteous those who are unrighteous. In commenting on this particular phrase, uh, the theologian John Murray says, The promises given to Abraham were in that category, the ma'anta category. The things promised had not yet come into being. They were non-existent as respects realization. But because God promised them and therefore determined that they should come to pass, the certainty of their realization was secure. God's promise was for Abraham as good as fulfillment. God's promise was for Abraham as good as fulfillment. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what was the substance of that belief? What did that belief look like? It amounted basically to this, that Abraham looked and saw, and for Abraham, because of what God spoke, what was may anta was as good as anta. What was non-existent existed. The promise was as good as the fulfillment. That's how certain it was that what God had promised would, in fact, come to pass. Calvin adds that the character of the divine calling is that they who are dead are raised by the Lord. That they who are nothing begin to be something through his power. This is what's happening to us through this promise. God has promised to give us life in the midst of our death. God makes to exist what does not exist, including us. Last time I said that it was important for us to learn how to live like receivers, not just earners. But there are good lessons you can learn from earning your way in life, important lessons that you should earn, learn from earning your way in life. And yet, God's promises of grace towards us teach us lessons you can't learn through earning, lessons that you can only uh, learn through receiving what could never be yours by right. So building on that, I want to say what we have to do we have to learn to live like heirs. We have to learn to live like people who will inherit the world because that's what's been promised. One of my favorite novels is Charles Dickens' book, Bleak House, uh, which is huge. And one of the reasons it's my favorite is I finished it. And and most people haven't. And it feels good to say, hey, have you ever read Bleak House? And, And people, they're crushed. Because they haven't. I have a friend who, who finished Bleak House, and when he finished it, he went to the top of his dormitory, and he cast it off the roof in disgust and, and looked in satisfaction as the book kind of exploded on the ground. But it is actually a fantastic and, and, and meaningful book um, about inheritance. Because in Bleak House, the, the drama revolves around a contested inheritance – if you've ever read the book, (laughs) or or seen uh, like an adaptation of the book, Uh, had to throw it in, you know the gist of it. There's um, this great inheritance and it's it's through the Jarndyce family, but, but there's been a death. And so many different claimants come to it. And there are these kids who are the wards of the court. They're called the wards of Jarndyce. And and many people before them have been ground into nothing by by expectations based on this inheritance. Many people have gone mad, gone to their deaths thinking that they would inherit. But uh, the, the lesson to learn, of course, is not to get your hopes up, unfortunately the way that you learn it is by seeing one of the characters in the book that you really uh, have high hopes for get sucked into it and begin to live as if he will inherit this contested fortune and starts you know living as if it is a guarantee that all the money will come to him, and as you can imagine, that turns out to be uh, catastrophic. Uh, he essentially ends in in bankruptcy, destroying his life and and feeling utterly hopeless. I would say spoiler warning, but let's be realistic. Um, It's okay if I tell you this stuff. So big lesson, essentially, and, and, and like a lot of big lessons it can be reduced down to the level of cliche, which is don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? Hey, maybe you've been promised a great inheritance. Maybe millions of dollars are going to be yours at some point in the future, but the wise thing to do is to live as if you will inherit nothing, right? So if you live as if you will inherit nothing, then you will not be caught out. If you do inherit, that's awesome. You'll suddenly have this great inheritance, but you won't need it because you weren't relying on it. And if, as is more likely, you do not inherit some great fortune, it won't hurt you because you haven't been depending upon it. That is common sense. And any wise person, if you pose this dilemma to them, will tell you do not trade on expectations. Like, do not uh, not trust that all your problems will be solved by some windfall in the future. That is not the path of wisdom. The reason why is because that inheritance is not guaranteed. Because there is no guarantee that those expectations will, in fact, be fulfilled. And it's stupid to live as if things which are uncertain in the future will surely come to pass, right? But Paul says that Abraham is heir of the world and that we, if we are children of Abraham, if we have the same faith as Abraham, then we too are heirs of the world. That promise, he says, rests on grace and is guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. In fact, those two things go hand in hand. It's because it rests on grace and not on works that it is guaranteed. He's not saying because salvation rests on grace, it is possible to be saved. He's saying because it rests on grace and not on works, salvation is guaranteed to those who have the same faith as Abraham. It is guaranteed. Remember how John Murray put it? God's promise was for Abraham as good as fulfillment. And until we live as if God's promise to us is certain, have we really understood what the covenant of grace really promises? If you withhold your love until you know that it will be returned, do you really understand what God has promised you? If you are generous towards others only out of your abundance, if you open your hand only when your pockets are full, Do you really understand what you've been promised and its certainty? If you forgive others only once they've earned it, do you really understand what it means to be an heir to the world? If you are at peace whenever there's no conflict, do you truly understand what it is to inherit the world? There are two failings that I would say, um, i was going to say many of you, I'm going to say all of you and me too, two failings we all suffer from, two things we're guilty of. We live as if something less than the world has been promised to us. Not that we don't believe God has made promises and not that we don't trust that he will fulfill them, but we live as if what he's promised is something less than what he's actually promised. And also, and more cuttingly, we live as if there's no guarantee that what was promised will be received. We live in hope that God will fulfill his promises, but then we live day to day as if he might not. And there's no guarantee, and we don't want to be presumptuous. And in living that way, we show that whatever comprehension we have of the doctrine we don't really understand the promise we don't really understand what god is telling us paul says relying on works makes faith null and the promise void so rely on faith instead which means rely on god rely on god instead relying on god the more fully we rely on God, the more fully we understand what it means to be an heir of the world. It's Mother's Day, so I want to end with a tribute to motherly love. But it's not going to be sentimental. In pulpits across America, across the world, there will be very sentimental, almost hagiographic, saintly tributes to the uh, perfection of, of motherly love. And this is not going to fall into that category. And and I think it hopefully will actually be more compelling for that. In Christian counseling, there's a truism that uh, heavenly father problems are often connected to earthly father problems. People struggle to relate to their God in heaven, oftentimes because they've had difficult relationships with their father here on earth. And so you begin to see quickly that uh, the life of faith is not an intellectual exercise, and what we have experienced and suffered can often deeply impact you know, the life we live and what we're able to believe, what we're able to trust in. So a bad relationship with your earthly father can, can also you know, result in a bad relationship with your heavenly father. It's not Father's Day, so I can say that. And uh, it's totally fine. And the thing is, though, when you think about that, and I've thought about it a lot, and I think there is truth to it. I, I feel like I've, I've observed uh, that to some extent. We don't often think about the, the opposite case. We often don't think about uh, the way that your mother's love teaches you about the love of God. And I think this is important, especially if if what we're thinking about is how to rely on God, that a mother's love can picture for us the love of God. Now like I said, I don't want to sentimentalize this, but but I do just want you to think for a moment it's It's strange to think that there could be a person in the world who could love you so absolutely that she would give her life for you, but she also won't let you get away with anything. Right? She loves you unconditionally, but but also is really picky about every little choice you make. People often say, I, it's hard to believe in, in this God of love because he also gives all these orders, these commands. He has all these expectations of holiness. And it's like, Think about your mom. Your mom loves you in the same way, but she has expectations. Right? She has standards for you as well. She would give her life for you, but she will never make peace with your bad choices as she sees them. It's one of these funny things. Like if you live your life in a way that your parents never would have approved of, eventually your dad will give up. He will make peace with that. He'll say, that's just the way it is. But for as long as your mother is alive, you will be hiding things from her because you know that, it, that even though it seems like she's given up, she hasn't. She's waiting, looking for her opportunity. Right? Because the standard, the hope that she has for you hasn't died. You may have gone completely off the rails. You may find yourself uh, in prison, but when they go to your mom's house and interview her, she will explain that you were actually a good boy. And she still has hopes for you. That's the crazy thing. For us, love and approval and acceptance, they go hand in hand. Not to approve of me is not to love me. The only way that you can maintain that kind of an understanding of love is is not to reflect on the way that your mother loves you. Because it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way right? The hope continues. The, the pride continues. But she never gives up on the thought that you might amend your ways. That can teach us something, I think, about the love of God. Because a mother's love is a love you can rely on. Like, she'll be there for you. She will sacrifice for you. But she will also have a high, high expectation of what she wants for you, the good that she wants for you, right? Here's the unsentimental part. In Isaiah 49, verse 15, this is is something, let's look at this. I'll prove to you that this is in the Bible. Isaiah 49, verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, Answer is no, of course not. Every time you read this verse, I know what comes afterwards, but every time I read it, it seems obvious to me the answer is no. No, a mother is not going to forget her child. She's not going to have no compassion on the son of her womb. But Isaiah continues, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Nobody's perfect like no mother is perfect maybe your mother doesn't approve of things you've done that are the right thing no one is perfect right no human love is perfect but the metaphor depends upon the inconceivability of of where it goes right if <clears throat> Isaiah had asked you know can a pastor forget his erring congregant, it loses some force even you know can a father forget his wayward son uh, it's hard but a mother to have no compassion on the son of her womb to forget her nursing child it seems inconceivable to us and it's meant to it's the reason why this is the metaphor it's inconceivable and yet In this fallen world, a lot of inconceivable things happen. A lot of us, by which I mean all of us at times, act against our nature, act against our desire. We do what we don't want to do. We do what we hate. We hurt those we love. In a fallen world, that's the reality. And God is saying, in that fallen world, perhaps... The most pristine example of love that you can look at, that you can point to, is this love of a mother for her child. But even there, you recognize exceptions. Even there, you you recognize uh, abnormalities. And God is saying, yeah, that's true. That's true. This inconceivable thing is possible in this sinful world. What I'm saying to you is that, that even if the strongest love you know fails, my love will not fail. That's the power of it. Even if the strongest bond known to you breaks, my bond will not break. When salvation relies on grace, that's the God it relies on. That's who you're trusting in. You're trusting in a God who says, my love, Cannot be broken. My promises will be fulfilled, which means you can rely on him, even if he's promised you the world. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org.